The title of the sermon this morning is this, She Being Dead Still Speaks. But are we listening? But are we listening? She Being Dead Still Speaks, But Are We Listening? And it's an adaptation of what we have in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 4. What about Abel? Well, I'm actually referring the she of my sermon title is actually our late queen. And we'll come to that in a moment. But just to attend for a a minute or two to the context. What is it that we are saying about Abel? This man, well, there, born to Adam and Eve, and who made an offering, and who made the right offering to God. They had a brother, Cain. But Cain didn't listen. He didn't listen to God. He didn't listen to what God required of a worshipper, at least in the order of things in those days, that if you wanted fellowship with God, both to establish it and then to maintain it and keep it, then it would require blood sacrifice. There had to be an offering, an offering of something living. And that something living, in order to be able to have fellowship with God, had to be put to death. There had to be the shedding of blood. And it was a reminder, always, that human beings fallen short of the glory of God, failed, they were sinners, and that God had not forgotten that sin. And if we wanted to approach him and then to continue with him, then we ever had to be mindful of what actually we deserved, death. That's what had been promised, wasn't it? The day you sin, you shall surely die. And that would have been heard by Abel and Cain from their father and their mother, Adam and Eve. They first heard those things. They indeed were responsible in that respect for bringing upon mankind those things, death, and the need, therefore, for something to die in the place of the worshipper if they were to be able to approach God and to experience his blessing, his favor, to have his smile upon them. And Abel had heard that. And so when he brought his offering, he brought something from his flock. And he offered, therefore, an animal, live animal, that he put to death and made that the offering to God. And God accepted his offering and declared of him in that respect in which he was looking, not at his own righteousness, but looking to God to provide forgiveness and righteousness, that actually God accounted that as righteous, that heart, that obedience, that faith, that looking to God to provide atonement for sin. Cain had none of that. He brought an offering. I'm sure it cost him something. He brought some of the First fruits there of his harvest. He was a man, wasn't he, who tilled the ground and had uh, had plenty there. But there was no blood. Nothing had died. And God was displeased with Cain. Cain actually didn't listen to what God was saying to him. You know, I'm sure that Cain then murdered Abel and was then sent away and had a curse upon him because of his disobedience. Well, what had happened? Well, what the writer is saying here in Hebrews to us as well as to the people then is that actually that whole transaction, Abel, being righteous in heart, who had obedience and faith, not looking at himself, looking to God 
to receive a sacrifice that wasn't himself, that was an animal on his behalf, but the necessity of that sacrifice, that without the shedding of blood, that there was no remission of sin. Believing that, and believing that God would accept that, as indeed he did, and that God testified there of his gift that uh, he was righteous. And that testimony, that faith of Abel, that testimony from God about Abel, here it is in scripture, we to turn up the pages there in Genesis, it will be there. And the writer is saying, well, that, that sacrifice, that attitude of Abel, he may be dead, but what he did still speaks. It's there in scripture. The record is there. We can still learn from it. And God is still speaking that that's what I look for, a blood sacrifice. Of course, now we know that we don't have to bring animals today. You didn't have to bundle a lamb or a goat into your car when you came. You didn't have to meet me outside there with some altar and to wear some very special clothes and a knife in my hand and sort of plunge it there into, into this creature. No, we were past that. And we know why, because the Lord Jesus died that death, died the death that was prefigured in all those sacrifices right from Abel at the, the beginning of our history and, well, all the sacrifices in the tabernacle, the temple, Passovers, new moons, whatever festival, feast was uh, the occasion. All those sacrifices no longer necessary. We look at Christ and that is the only and the final sacrifice that we will ever need. The only blood sacrifice. It's not a bull or a goat now, friends, is it? It's the blood of a real human being. Why? But more than just a human being, the God-man. And in that blood, there is pardon for all sin, any sin, every sin, and pardon and peace that endureth because there's no need for it to be repeated. But there's Abel's sacrifice and the attitude, his faith that was in that sacrifice that still speaks to us today. And there is the record in scripture. What's interesting, isn't it, that really what the writer is saying here is he lists all these men and women of faith. There was Sarah who was counted God faithful, who had promised, and there she was given strength to bear a child. And we have friends in our midst for whom Bearing children is a very real, real issue, and our prayers are very much with them at this this delicate time. But there is Sarah, and a bit of a different case there, we would have to say, wasn't it? Remarkable. But she believed. And so that is accounted there as, as righteousness in that way, that faith in God. And when at the end of this chapter and into chapter 12, it talks of being surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, it's all these people in Hebrews 11 and their faith and what it says to us still today. And they're all dead, of course, and they're all dead at the time that the people who are the first recipients of this letter read it. But still those people, their faith, what they did, what God did for them and how he vindicated them. This is still speaking to this very day. I was quite uh, uh, just uh, thinking about this and just thought of um, how... The woman who, just before our Lord Jesus died, it was Mary, wasn't it, there, who came with the alabaster jar and with all the fragrant oil in it and poured it over the head of the Lord Jesus. And there were some complaints, weren't there, about this, that that should have been sold and, and given to the poor. But our Lord corrects them 
rebukes them and commends Mary for what she did and says this, Why do you trouble the woman? Matthew 26, verse 10, for she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my head, she did it for my burial. Assuredly, I say to you, ever this gospel is preached in the whole world. What this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. That's her perception and discernment that there was a burial coming and that she was anointing the body of this great teacher whom she loved in preparation for that burial. She's done a good thing. And our Lord says that wherever this gospel is preached, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. So she being dead still speaks how she was aware that he had to die and that that was the only way in which we would have salvation. Well, the queen is dead. Long live the king. And if you watched the funeral and you would have been in good company, whether at Westminster Abbey or whether you then also waited for later at St. George's Chapel, Windsor. Well, there was something to hear in that service. Uh, Late Queen planned that service, planned it some years back. What would be read and what would be sung and how it should proceed, that it should be. And we were told this in advance of the funeral, which perhaps cheered our hearts a bit, thinking of it, that it would be a Christian funeral. And indeed, I think that it actually was. And we might say that she planned to speak at her own funeral. She planned what words should be spoken, what she wanted to have spoken, and for the nation to hear. But she was no fool. She knew that the world would be tuning in to that event, that funeral, as indeed the world actually did. The estimate, I know not how they come to these things, but 4.1 billion people, which uh, is more than half the world's population, saw that funeral and heard those words and the hymns. And the Archbishop of Canterbury, well, I'd be as kind as I can, but who, who did on this occasion find find his voice and did say some things. I generously said at the end of uh, his address, well, it was nearly very good. It was good. (laughs) There were good things in that. And that went out to the the ends of the earth, literally to the ends of the earth. And in our own nation, well, the statistics there bamboozled me a little bit, but somewhere towards 26, 28 million, we think, watched it through and others tuned in, tuned out, and you can add a few more million, therefore, to that figure. And we might say a credible person, and uh, who has, as we were thinking last week, there demonstrated some sterling qualities. And in the sense in which the funeral that was conducted, again, smilingly say, take away the crowns and the pageantry and those uh, well-groomed and immaculately turned out pallbearers, one of whom apparently comes from Selston. So just over the border in Nottinghamshire, I think another lad came from Derbyshire. So anyway, I don't know whereabouts precisely, but there they were. A moment they'll never, ever forget. But the hymns were hymns that we would sing at a funeral here and have sung. And the readings were readings that we would have at funerals. It was it was a funeral that we, in that way, recognised. You saw what was done and uh, and and how it was conducted. 
Yes, that would be a funeral that we would follow. And although, as we've commented, she's not been able to be the defender of the faith, that being the monarch and all complication of that really meant that she couldn't quite follow through with that. And she may well have regretted that and perhaps regretted as well that whatever Christian conviction she had, she hadn't been able to sort of transfer them to her children and grandchildren, that their behaviour, and we're not unaware of that, and we can't gloss over it either, and we pray for them in the knowledge of their behaviour, that you couldn't quite instill that any more than we can in our own children. We pray for them, and we encourage them, we exhort them in scripture, but then we have to leave to God, don't we, the result of that. So she being dead still speaks. But yes, but are we listening? Come more to that last part in a moment. Well, my first heading, funerals are poignant moments, aren't they? Funerals are poignant moments. It's a sad uh, kind of aspect of certainly Western culture here in this country to trivialise funerals, to downgrade the solemnity of what's happened, to try to have a superficial glibness and uh, you know the mandatory singing of or hearing of I did it my way and that sort of thing. And that is very, very sad and perhaps is just a reflection really of the the emptying out, the hollowing out of our culture and the de-Christianizing of it. And therefore to take away from death, really what it is, the solemnity, the seriousness of it, and to replace it with triviality and, and ill-placed, wrongly placed humor. Well, the service that we saw, that I saw, and perhaps you saw on Monday, Westminster Abbey, and then afterwards in Windsor, was solemn and yet full of hope. It was full of hope. The readings, what was sung, was full of hope. And in a sense, too, and in a way which perhaps could never be quite accomplished, the Queen being who the Queen was, and a, a you know figure of worldwide appeal and significance. Nevertheless, I think if we interpret her hopes in planning that service aright, that she was trying to point away from herself to another, that she was trying to take the attention of a watching world away from herself and have the spotlight well and properly placed on another, even our Lord Jesus Christ. People are moved at funerals who are not moved at any other time. People listen to even scripture at funerals who never listen to it any other time. And I've taken enough funerals to know that sometimes people who are atheists are really, really moved, are really shaken by, by death, hearing about it and hearing then of the resurrection from the dead, now Lord Jesus Christ. And suddenly all their kind of convictions and all their previous certainties are now uncertain. And they're, they're adrift and they're, they're needy and they're feeling, feeling at, at sea. And you can pity them that they just haven't got point. They haven't got a compass to guide them. People are moved in ways that they're not moved at other times. There's weeping, isn't there? Well, think of Jairus' daughter and how when our Lord went and was laughed to scorn because he said, she's not dead, she's sleeping, and goes to awaken her. And all the people that were already there and mourning and all the grief, and he tells them to go away, they're not needed. To respond to that, I'm mad. Of course, she's dead. We've seen dead people before. 
There they are. They, they were weeping. They were moved. And, well, our Lord himself was moved, wasn't he, as he stood before the tomb of Lazarus. And even though he knew exactly what he was going to do, as he knew exactly what he was going to do for Jairus' daughter, 12-year-old, raise her from the dead. And, and Lazarus, four days in the tomb, he's going to raise him from the dead. Yet pause to just drink in what death means and the significance of it. And it's not a time for a bit of jollity and gaiety, though we have hope, but it is a time for solemnity and tears as our Lord himself wept there. And people have been reminded of death quite a bit over the last few years. The whole of the COVID-19 crisis, pandemic, whatever you want to call it. And <laughs> might with a wry smile say, I don't think people died of anything until COVID-19 came. Then, then we're hearing about death all the time and, and the statistics as though nobody had died of anything up until that point. And still something of that obsession, call it that, something of that fixation lives on. And it's gone deep into the psyche of many people, young people, and left them in a state of some fear. And there was death. The people were reminded of death and well, perhaps much moved by that. I don't think they were intelligently moved by it. Perhaps I'd say that, but they were moved by it. And uh, suddenly death was all the conversation. And so, yes, funerals are poignant moments. That funeral on Monday of our Queen was a very poignant moment. Packed with scripture. Packed with scripture that was either read or that was sung. The actual readings themselves there. Let's comment upon the people who read them, but our Prime Minister being one of them. There was John 14, verses 1 to 9. There was 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 to 58. And when the coffin entered Westminster Abbey, there were singing portions of John 11. Resurrection and the life, Job 19. Job saying, I know my Redeemer lives, and I think it was Revelation 21. And about the new heavens and the new earth, and God wiping away every tear from their eyes. And furthermore, they sung a portion of Psalm 42, and then later on at St. George's Chapel, the entirety of Psalm 121, and some very poignant uh, parts of Psalm 103, packed with scripture. Oh, and then the hymns as well. And uh, well, we're going to finish with Love Divine or Love's Excelling. You might have noticed we sung The Lord's My Shepherd. And that was sung as well and packed with Christian truth like Psalm 23. And this evening, if you're here, we're going to finish with the day that I gave us Lord is ended. Sing that at funerals. Well, we sing that in church. We're familiar with this. There's scripture, scriptural truth throughout it all. 4.1 billion people worldwide heard it, saw it. 28 million people here in the United Kingdom. And if we can sort of tear ourselves away from the pageant, tear ourselves away from all the, the extras, because it was the death of a queen, gun carriages and solemn marching sailors, soldiers, pallbearers, uh, any amount of clergy there in, in, in their costume that they wear and the rest of it. But if you can take that away, and there also within what the Archbishop himself was saying, Christian truth, and the man mentioned judgment actually, and he mentioned the significance and the importance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we were glad to hear that. And there perhaps the Queen was saying, well, please look Look at him, not at me. I must decrease. He must increase. And you have to reckon on that. 
and that her own personal hopes and perhaps her own personal beliefs were somewhere there written in to that service. So funerals are poignant moments, poignant perhaps for our nation, poignant perhaps for the world. And so my second heading, did people listen? Did people listen? Did they actually grasp what was being spoken to them? What, if you will, the queen being dead yet was speaking to them? Did they realize that this is actually commonplace Christian doctrine, that uh, you and I, hearing that service, weren't hearing something we'd never heard the like of before? We heard everything that we're very familiar with, hymns we're very familiar with, readings that we love, very familiar with. Our Lord Jesus Christ, his name, that doesn't cause us embarrassment, but rejoicing and hope. Ah, we heard it. But did the nation hear it? Was God indeed speaking through this? And, well, I can't interpret the intentions and the mind of a a late queen. She didn't uh, contact me for any advice than that, and probably very wisely never did. But did she have in her thinking there that this was going to be a very poignant moment for the world to hear about our Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe, and maybe she realized this, that all the pageantry and the ceremony and the occasion and and the fact that she lived to 96 and reigned for 70 years and all the assessments of that and all of the the talk about that would, would somehow drown out something of the music of its own. Well, perhaps that was just unavoidable. But yet it was poignant. I felt it was poignant. Perhaps you felt it was a moment. Something something happening there. But do people hear it? And I said, well, it'll be interesting. We're going to Belper on Saturday. I'll tell you what I find. Oh, and we'll be seeing George, our open-air preacher. And uh, this last week, I've been preaching in Doncaster and Derby and Rotherham. And we'll see what he found. See if anything is happening out there. Well, we had an excellent leaflet, and it made my actual assessment of it that we we actually gave out more leaflets to people who probably would have refused, but for the fact that it was had the Queen on the front of it and we could give it there, and oh, that that was interesting. I, I had children actually wanting copies of it. One of them said, "Well, I'll take a copy of that for me dad as well." So we're very happy to be giving these out there. And and George actually, I'm sure he won't mind me quoting it when I asked him. He said, "Well." When you mention in open air preaching the Queen's name, people perhaps did stop and, and turn their head. But otherwise, no, same, same as usual. Uh, and Belper, yesterday, apart from the fact that we had some scaffolding being put up a couple of properties down from where we had the open air and uh, one of our poor preachers there, I certainly do owe him a cup of coffee this. I suggested he preach first and then these scaffolders turned up and drilling away as they fixed all the, the, the fittings together to put this scaffolding up. But, uh, um, found that's a bit, bit hard going we did there, but then it stopped and we do preaching. But in a sense, it made no difference, even with the scaffolders drilling or without. People didn't stop. Well, barely anybody stopped. I'll qualify that. Somebody did stop, spoke, didn't agree with what we're saying, but he stopped. Uh, and was all for free speech, I think. So he was happy for us to be out there, but I didn't pick up much else. I didn't think that there, the name of Jesus Christ heard at that funeral broadcast to many of those people who are in the streets and many of the people that our friends with the Open Air Mission are preaching to. But as yet, well, maybe I've got to say as yet, early days, yes, but as yet, 
no indication of anything happening out there. No indication of our neighbours asking us, what are these things? We heard that funeral, we saw it. Those readings struck us. Haven't heard it yet, have you? Or whether it's going to be, well, like Felix, when Paul spoke to him and reasoned with him about judgment and righteousness and self-control, that he trembled but postponed any decision, listened but didn't listen enough to actually act, or so we would believe, upon it. And there he was, postponing, perhaps till too late, that he would act upon what he had heard. Did people listen? Final heading, time of decision. Time of decision. And feels it is for our nation so, so many ways. Time of decision. And I'm not speaking for the world here, but perhaps for our nation. Just it was a time of decision for Jerusalem, wasn't it? When our Lord came in, riding upon that donkey there, and coming into the city, great, uh, great happenings, and Hosanna to the son of David, and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That tripped easily from the tongue, and people recognized perhaps there a moment, at least uh, those who had uh, their psalms open, and various places could reference what was taking place. But it didn't last, did it? And well, soon enough, there was a readiness to have him crucified and a preparedness to have unspeakably bad things said about him, said against him, and ill treatment finally issuing in death. That was a time of decision. It didn't really work too well for Jerusalem, did it? What about you? What about you here this morning or, or listening in? Yeah, what about you? Time of decision? Moment to reckon on eternity, a moment to consider as, as we were confronted there. Couldn't avoid it if you were watching that funeral, that there was the word of God. There was about Christ. Don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. Do you believe it? Did you hear it? Do you believe in that eternity? God raised his son from the dead. Raised with power, declared there by the spirit of holiness to be the son of God. And have you found peace in him? Forgiveness of your sin? It is. It's a time of decision, friends. And indeed, for us perhaps to realize, well, how much more time is our nation going to have? How many more times will God speak? (laughs) There won't be another queen. There won't be another funeral quite like that, I think. There won't be quite another kind of moment where the whole world almost stops to, to tune in and is then able to, to hear parts of 1 Corinthians 15, John chapter 14, the singing of love divine. How many more times will God speak to our, our nation? Well, God is patient. Indeed, God is very, very patient. One could turn to a few scriptures to anchor that thought in our minds. Second Peter Chapter 3, just a couple of verses from there, verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, that all should come to repentance. Not wanting, taking pleasure in people in our nation, like in Belper yesterday, or Derby, Rotherham, Sheffield, Doncaster, you name it. 
walking past and ah, can't be bothered with this. No, thanks. Not interested. He is very patient. He is long suffering, willing them there to come to repentance. And, and again, it's, it's there in verse 15 of second Peter chapter three. And consider that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation. As also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. That patience is the time in which repentance comes and salvation comes. And that God forbears from visiting judgments while he may yet speak and yet reason with people. And they will yet believe. And that is salvation. His patience means there's still hope and there is salvation still to be received. Well, first Peter chapter three and verses 18 to 20, which covers some of the ground again. And we read in Hebrews 11 about Noah. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the spirit. By whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. Long suffering, waiting while the ark was being built before the flood came. And only eight people were in that ark. And uh, our Sunday school children know that. And uh, Seekers Club children have got that well drilled. Only eight. All those people, only eight. That divine long-suffering. And we could have read of Noah there, the preacher of righteousness, who had been divinely warned. And there he was, busy preparing that ark, pleading with the people. Well, years and years and years. I mean, 20 years, in fact. That's a long time. God was patient, but not forever. And in the end, he judged that world as he said he would. The rains came and that was that. No way back. Our nation needs to listen. Or Romans in chapter two. And here was a, a warning. Paul in this, this part of this letter where, where he's just showing to the church all the mistakes the Gentiles have made. Oh, now the mistakes that the Jews had made, where they had shut themselves out of the grace of God, had so much, yet did so little with it. Romans 2, I read from verse 4. He says, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath, and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds, eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good, seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish, on every soul of man who does evil, the Jew first, and also of the Greek, glory and honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Well, there is that long-suffering. There is that patience. There is that call to repentance. Stay in God's hand, not yet. Give them more time. Keep kind of, as it were, hurrying slowly with that ark. There's still more preaching, more time. Queen passing away. 
Still, God showing patience, perhaps, big event. All of that message, all of that truth went out. How much longer? Or are we despising the riches of his goodness, forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads us to repentance, but refusing to repent? That hardness of heart, that impenitence, which is simply treasuring up for such people wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. COVID-19, did people listen? I don't think they did. To be quite blunt, I don't think they did. International situation, tension, cost of living crisis connected with it and various other things. Are people listening? I wonder if they are. And now, Queen passing away. All these things, all this happening. Are they listening? Well, what about us, friends? What about us? Well, I suggest we should be very earnest, very earnest in our prayers. I read that passage from Joel chapter 2, just uh, uh, to read a few verses again from it there in Joel chapter 2, just to take from verse 12. Now, therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness. He relents from doing harm. Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Earnestness there. And, well, appropriate to the customs of that time and when they would rend their garments to show they were greatly affected. The Lord is saying, I don't want shows of piety and a show of repentance. Feel it in your heart. Mean it there. Weep, lament. And we had Joel chapter 1, verses 13 to 14 at a prayer meeting. And again, a similar a sentiment there. Gird yourselves and lament you, priests. Wail, you who minister before the altar. Come lie all night in sackcloth, you who minister to my God. The concerns that we have, the judgments we see on our nation, the happenings to which people are unmoved, where they need to be moved, impenitent and hard of heart. And we need to be vehement and we need to cry out. We need to pray for ourselves in that respect, that really for us, failure is not an option. We cannot fail, must not fail the purposes of God in our own generation. It's not as if there are a hundred other people waiting to take your place and mine. There simply are not. Many, many churches are small. And some which were bigger are now a lot smaller because of what's happened there. There's not thousands upon thousands. Are oh, there people? They're scattered here and there. there. There are churches and causes and places, and we thank God for each of them. But there's not thousands and millions. There's not somebody else who can rend their Hearts, not their garments. There's not somebody else out there who will be able to lament and, and wail, to cry out. And perhaps God is looking to us to intercede. How the church needs good leadership, good pastoring, good preaching. How it needs good doctrine and how it needs within its midst good behavior. How many churches disintegrate. The lack of good behavior by the people in the pulpit or the people in the pew. What are they doing? What are they thinking? 
when we have such urgent, urgent spiritual needs all around us. Pray for the church, wider church, the church in her broadest sense. Well, the Anglican Church did a, a bit better on Monday and preached some helpful things there, I, I say. By way there, being patronising, I hope it doesn't come across. We're very glad of those words. But there's plenty of other things we're not glad about. And here in our own Diocese of Derby, where there's Dr. Bernard Randall, who's a chaplain at Trent College, uh, Long Eaton Way, and um, removed from his position, declared to be tantamount to a terrorist because he does not believe that marriage is anything other than between a man and a woman. And the safeguarding people in the diocese took a very dim view of Dr. Bernard Randall and thought, well, he just doesn't seem to accept there's any other point of view. He just says this all the time. And the safeguarding report then went a bit further and said, do you know what? Actually, the church can be a bit of a safeguarding problem. Her teaching in general Please have a think about this, you know, that the church and her teaching could, could upset children and make them feel vulnerable and, and the rest of it. Incredible. Incredible. And that's in our own diocese here, Derby. Well, there is a, uh, an appeal, a tribunal ongoing. There is a case that, uh, Dr. Randall has, has brought against, uh, uh, the diocese in that regard. And we wait to hear the outcome of it. That's amazing. That's to uphold biblical truth. Well, that makes you to be a bit of a terrorist, actually. You're on that kind of spectrum there that uh, you're a violent, hate-filled person, bigoted. You'll, you'll do some horrible, horrible things. And we'll be just. So, friends, pray. Pray for the church. Pray for the nation. Pray for ourselves, yes, that we would be the people that go out that we would be the people that speak to people. Yes, that we speak to unbelieving people, not coming at them there as it were, like that, but coming with pity and coming with concern and coming with patience and long-suffering, which is what God demonstrates towards our nation, towards churches, towards us as individuals come to that. Going with that kind of heart of compassion, being, well, people call them people, people, don't they? Talking to people, not at people. Listening to them, gauging them, understanding them, and ministering to them. The truth takes time, and people often don't have time. Unbelievers are busy, busy people. Well, you wouldn't believe how busy, busy people they are in Belper. How many people haven't time, or uh, they're all right, and don't really need to stop and, and hear anything more about this. That's difficult. It's difficult to find time that other people have where they'll stop and listen. And then they'll talk about their fears. And then they'll talk about the things that they just haven't got any comprehension of. We can minister to them. So she being dead still speaks. But speak of our nation. Are we listening? Is our nation listening? Or may God yet Awaken our country. Open the eyes of the King of England. Open a few more eyes of people in high places and in authority. And that we may yet live to see better days, spiritually speaking, for our nation. Amen.